Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Marketplace Podcast. I'm your host, Priest Willis, and in today, episode 105, I'm joined with David Stein. David is an expert when it comes to money, how it works, and how to live without worrying about it. He's the creator of the super popular podcast, Money for the Rest of Us. Do you have friends, family, or loved ones that want to learn about money, investing, or the economy, but feel too intimidated to start? Well, then David here has the answers for us. He's a good resource that I wish I had when I first started investing 20 plus years ago. In David's former life, he was actually a chief investment and portfolio strategist of several billion dollars with an advisory board. He makes the complex understandable about a subject that touches every human being, which is money. Make sure to check out his podcast. I enjoy it. I've really been absorbing his podcast. It's helped me better understand what the tariffs mean for the economy. It's helped me better understand different investments. Maybe not get so excited about diversifying. I really enjoy how David breaks this down and makes it digestible for the rest of us, which is the name of his podcast. So without further ado, let's bring my man, David Stein on. Hey, David, welcome to the program. Great. It's good to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. Um, so, you know, you and I have talked offline a little bit, but I'll just for complete transparency for the listeners, I've been um, an avid listener of your podcast. I mean, I know people get caught up in binging at times. I've been one of those guys for you. And to make it even more awkward, I've kind of fell asleep listening to your podcast uh, several nights. So I I'm just excited to have you on and, and kind of ask you some financial questions that I've been wanting to know, maybe see if my philosophy is in line and just hear a little bit about you. But before we get into that, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, my, my professional background is as an institutional investment advisor. So I spent upwards of 15 to 17 years as an advisor, managing money primarily for endowments and foundations. And so as part of that, I, I co-led a research team where we were trying to identify really the, the smartest investors in the world. We were researching asset classes and just sort of helping these institutional investors that had big not-for-profit foundation portfolios navigate the markets. And so <laughs> I started that in the, in the mid nineties, sort of made it through the internet bubble, managed money through the, the financial crisis, then left in 2012. My partners bought me out and a year or so later, I launched the Money for the Rest of Us podcast because I found I missed the teaching aspect, which I spent a lot of time doing. I didn't necessarily miss managing the money. And so I, I've been podcasting now for four years. And as part of that, I have a education site called Money for the Rest of Us Plus. It's really a subscription service for those that want you know, free content, you have those that want some additional guidance. I'm no longer a registered investment advisor, so everything I provide is just through sort of general education as opposed to this individual should do this. You know, I have model portfolios and things of that sort, but no no individualized advice. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Your your podcasts, kind of, you provide so much rich information weekly um, on your podcasts, but I also know that you have a membership site. How much is is your membership site more specific towards if I'm, and I know you're not a licensed advisor, but if I reached out to you and said, hey, this is my portfolio, is it at that level? Or are you guys just as a group, as a, as a membership, are you 
coming up with topics and talking at a very high level? It's both. And so we'll occasionally profile a member. So I can't, like if somebody comes, it always has to be from me out to the group. So hmm. last week I do a weekly Q&A episode just for members. It was a gentleman that finally, you know, he's been a member for several years, finally got enough courage to sit down and put all his investments on a spreadsheet to figure out, hey, I have $3 million. And he's never really mm-hmm. sort of pulled it all together. He's thinking about retirement. And and he just, we sort of like, here's my portfolio. I have a million dollars of individual stocks, of which Apple was one of them. His cost basis was $30,000. It was worth $250,000. And, and so we just talked about it. You know, it was for an old broker, and, and he just had 22 stocks, and it, it just, and he was afraid, like, I don't want to sell it. I don't want to pay the taxes. And and so we kind of, I had a conversation, not with him, but to the group that, hey, that was never your money, right? It's the government's money. Uh, so your net worth isn't quite $3 million, just, you know, tack, knock off 25% of those individual stocks. I mean, that's what it is. And then you can sell them, you know, at the appropriate time for your tax situation, but anyway, so that's that's kind of what we do there. We'll we'll you know there's some models out there. I, I provide some guidance, but it's individuals that that have enough that they're worried about what to do next. And it's a little more t- the the podcast itself tends to be evergreen because I I like individuals to learn basic principles. But then if people want to actually see what I'm doing, mm-hmm. how I eat my own cooking, and, and making decisions in a very very complex uncertain world, then they can do that there. Oh, so do you have, I imagine not all of it, but do you have sort of a public opening to your finance to say, look, guys, I'm literally giving you the blueprint, win or fail, this is what oh, yeah. I'm doing yeah. right so now. Yeah, I, so I share, you know, the percentages in my portfolio, what my holdings are. When I make a change, I put it out on the website. And, and so people can see, because a big portion of the way that I've always managed money is, is not to try to predict the future, but to invest on the leading edge of the present. So what's happening now? What are market conditions now? Hmm. And how should I be positioned now, given the environment? And and so as part of that, I, I, we, I do a monthly investment conditions report where we're looking at valuations. We're looking at economic trends. We're looking at the level of fear and greed in the market. And I just, I think it makes only sense to say, all right, given investment conditions, what am I doing? And Mm-hmm. And the type of investing that I do and the type that I teach and have done institutionally is not to sit there and make changes every single week. Right. You're not a day trader. No, yeah. no. Even as an advisor, for we ran a discretionary portfolio based on a, an investment approach I developed. And, and in that, we made changes two to three times a year. Mm-hmm. And in what I do in my portfolio, I don't make that many changes. You know, sometimes I'll take profits. But it's asset allocation basis is what investors should do is focus on big picture, but I'm willing to, to risk manage and make adjustments and allocate to those areas that are most attractive and avoid areas that there's potentially some risk there. I can't help but to think that a lot of people, the, the, the average investor, it may be even under that. A lot of times when they work with financial advisors, they feel like if there's no kind of movement or shifting, then essentially nothing is happening. So what you inevitably end up doing is having the advisor make it look like they're doing something, right? Because otherwise you don't feel completed as an investor that you are dealing with the latest stocks or index funds or whatever may excite you out there. But traditionally speaking, 
right? The average person who knows, or the, the above average person who knows, the markets don't shift every week, right? So you- They don't, they don't. But you, you point out a, a huge psychological issue with in- investors. And I saw that you know, as an institutional advisor where, yeah, we're making two to three changes a year. They were incremental changes, but I could tell when my fellow consultants who were out servicing them, and I, you know, I was part of the portfolio management team, where people were feeling like, hey, you haven't done anything in a while. Right. And so, you know, we would make a change, but I would use it as a, you know, we would do a write-up as really like, here's what's going on. So I would just use it as an opportunity to put context about, around what was going in the market. And, and then it worked out. You made two or three a year. Eventually, you know, over time, heading into the crisis, for example, you're able to pull back risk. But it's an incremental approach because, you, again, you, you have no idea. You know, this year is a perfect example. You know, everything suggested that the U.S. stock market is significantly more expensive than other areas of the world. Mm-hmm. Yet, the U.S. market is the best performing market uh, this year, which is why it's never, you know, you never completely want to be out of the U.S. stock market. It doesn't make any sense because it makes up 52% of the world's market. And this is an example, if you're, if you're not in it at all, then you've missed out on some potential gains. And so it's always, it's weighing the probabilities. It's playing the probabilities and making portfolio adjustments that way. So how much do you weigh the U.S. stock market? 50%, 60%? If you look at 100% of your asset allocation? Well, in, in my, just the stock. So the U.S. market is 52% of the world's hmm. market capitalization. I'm around... I think I don't have it right in front of me. Probably twenty five percent. Okay. U.S. Okay. But you have to recognize that you know my overall allocation to stocks is only about fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. So I you know I focus on preservation of capital. I'm getting U.S. exposure to U.S. investments through private equity, through some venture capital, through some real estate, and so that you know, I'm I'm very much kind of an absolute return investor in my personal portfolio. Mm-hmm. Which is why I also show models because most you know other people aren't necessarily in that stage or have access to some of the private investments that that you know others can can get to. And for example, I invest in some of the the funds that my old firm you know we've put together some private capital funds that I get some allocation to. But you know in in this environment, like the models that I run are, are I think they're about thirty five percent U.S. Hmm. stocks. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's an underweight there, but it's not completely out. So you know, I've read somewhere where you said that very few people get rich investing, and I know that's another psychological thing out there where a lot of people believe your wealth is gained essentially through investing. I mean, they hear half of the story about Warren Buffett or some other dynamo that went you know got into some investments early on, even willing to watch over and over again Jordan Belford and the Leo. The Car- uh, DiCaprio movie or whatever it is to get into penny stocks if they have to, because ultimately they think that's what's going to get them rich. But you say, no, it's as simple as saving more and spending less. You know, talk about that to the person that's like, well, I really don't have a lot to save. And, I, you know, when I am saving, where do I put it that will get me over the hump? How do you how do you manage that? How do you approach something like that? Well, I do think it's true that most even in the the investment world, Hedge fund managers, for example, most of their wealth came from managing a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. You, they earn twenty percent of the profits, and so that's a big chunk in terms of fees. Mm-hmm. And so, when you see these billion-dollar hedge fund managers, it's not from appreciation. There's a few, 
most it's it's getting money from their clients, collecting the fee, right, or collecting the the carry, and the the markets are so much more competitive now, and and I see it, it, you mentioned penny stocks or foreign currency trading or something commodities. It it, it actually kind of surprises me how often new investors that's what they gravitate to, right. And one of the questions investors have to always ask is, is who's on the other side of the trade? Mm. The, uh, the stock market, it's an auction market. And if, if I'm buying, somebody's selling. And in this environment, 90% of the trades are, are done by bots. It's algorithms and that, that are looking for mispricings. And it, it's extremely competitive. And so as an investor, I have to say, well, what do I know that that bot doesn't? And or even, let's say, in the foreign exchange market, yeah. where for every buyer, there's a seller. So if I think the euro is going to strengthen relative to the dollar, then somebody else thinks the dollar is going to strengthen relative to the euro. And across the board, the net expected return is zero. It's a zero sum game. And after fees, it's. Yeah, you're talking about yeah, like Forex. Forex. Everybody's or, getting or even into- commodities. Commodities is the same thing. And so yeah. I, I think as investors, when we talk about savings, Start with an asset class that has a positive expected return, like stocks, like bonds. So even if you don't have to be smarter than everybody else to make money doing asset allocation and saving. Now, you're not going to make 20% type returns Mm -hmm. consistently because even the the best hedge fund managers I know in the world have done maybe 15% annualized. That's really, really hard mm-hmm. to do. And so we have to t- be willing to take what the market's willing to give and then save. And in the, today's environment where you have bond or interest rates very, very low in the context of, of a long-term history, you have stocks above average valuations, particularly the U.S. market, returns are going to be single digits. Mm-hmm. And in that environment, we're going to have to save 20% of our income in order to retire. And if and then we just kind of it's kind of always have to make that adjustment. So we just can't hope it's going to work out. And and I've seen that in some financial plans where it's based on hope. It's based on historical returns, mm-hmm. which are unrealistic, which gets back to what are the market conditions? What's what's the starting place? Let's come up with some reasonable assumptions based on where we are now. And that's what the market gives us. And we're going to have to adjust our spending and savings based on that and, and live lifestyles. And I think, you know, one other point is, is we don't have to re- quit working when when we're 55 or 60, we can find, we can, I call it live like you're already retired. Find a way to generate some income well into your, your 60s or 70s or even 80s. Because one, it puts way less pressure in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. And two, you won't get bored. You'll have something to do. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've done, and I'm not suggesting by any means that this is for everyone, but I'll share it with you. And I'd love for you to just tell me why it doesn't make much sense. Um, but I remember a period in time in this this country's rich history, if you will, um, where home buying was a big thing. And there was a lot of opportunity um, to see that as a, a real investment vehicle. And I, I still think that it that there is. But the way a lot of people talk about home buying today, it's, it's like the be all. It's the catch all where from my perspective, and I, I think you think par- at least partially this is the same. I believe wholeheartedly in working with index funds a little bit more. I know a lot of people have almost choked index funds or the investment of it to death. And I also believe in, you know, buying businesses and at least leaving yourself some room 
um, to be able to invest and do other things. Now, I'm not suggesting cryptocurrency or Forex because of the volatility in some of those areas. But as you pointed out, more stocks and, and something along those lines. Why is my investment or is it focused on being focused, at least right now, on index funds and starting a business? Do you think it's better than home buying or is it priest? I don't know. It just depends on your situation at this point. Well, my position on home buying is, is homes depreciate just like cars, mm-hmm. unless you, you're continuing to plow money in. So, I mean, there, there are periods and there are markets where home prices are going up, but over the long term, home prices barely keep up with inflation. The reason why individuals think or see that home buying or flipping houses or just trying to buy in a market and hold on is because it's it's leverage. It's the leverage. Their equity is going up because they've borrowed 80% of the price. Mm-hmm. Wife LaPerle, she likes to buy houses and fix them up. And we've done fine, right? But in you have to be very careful the price that you buy. And we've not made a ton of money on it by any means. And, and there's been a couple of times that we've lost a little bit of, bit of money, but she likes to do it. But it's a lot of work. That's the thing with home buying. It's a, it's a lot of work. And in fact, I got an email the other day where one of my members was feeling bad because he said all of his friends were, were out flipping houses and he was starting to think that maybe he was doing something wrong. And, and my point to him, always be wary when all your friends are doing something. Right. Right. I mean, that, that think about the internet bubble was suddenly, or even the housing crash, right? Suddenly everyone yeah. is buying houses, often sight unseen. They're just buying. Yeah. That you would have had to have been under a rock to not notice that. Right in 2005, 2006, and to, 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 to get out. Now, having said that, I built a house in 2005. And in my thought was, okay, I know what houses are selling for four to $500 a square foot in California. We're in Idaho. I'm building a brand new house for $100 a square foot. What could go wrong? You know, and we, by the time we put landscaping in, we were in about $400,000. And, you know, way cheaper than the rest of, of the country. Well, we lived there eight years and the house fell 20% mm. over that time. Mm. And it was like, all right. In Idaho? Cost. While you were in, in, in Idaho. Oh, wow. Because it was a new house. It wasn't new eight years later. It was an old house. And, you know, markets, they don't stop. Houses aren't destined to always go up. If, you know, there are some areas, if, if you're geographically constrained, in fact, we did, I did an episode on this. What do you do during a housing bubble? I mean, there are some areas where because of zoning, because of the topography, because of just the business environment, and because you have a lot of money coming from the outside, from other countries that want to buy in a specific area, there it's it's potentially you can make money buying a house. But it's it's you never know when that bubble, if it is a bubble, is going to burst. But if there's if you're in a place like Idaho where there's plenty of land and the zoning isn't terribly restrictive, then when if you're going to buy a house or build new, you have to recognize that this thing could go down once the shine wears off. And that's just the way houses are. But, uh, you know, in terms of your broader question, you know, my view is people should invest in as, as many different asset classes as possible. Mm. Get to do public, do private businesses. That's an investment. You try things. You don't want to do anything where if it doesn't work out, you're in serious trouble. But if you have, you know, don't put, it all in stock. So that, that doesn't make any sense either. It's important to have, maybe you have some real estate, maybe you own some land, maybe you own some gold, maybe you speculate in, in cryptocurrencies. And by speculate, you know, that's an investment where that doesn't have a positive return, where there's some disagreement. But with the speculation, 
you don't want to put more than 5 to 10% of your total portfolio in speculations because they can go the opposite way. Mm-hmm. You want to put most of your portfolio in investments, things that generate some type of cash and have a positive expected return. And that can be in the public markets. It can be something private. It could be a business. And you just try to get as diversified as possible. And, and don't, you know, don't go for one-trick ponies. Just try different things. I want to thank today's sponsor, Bloom. Do you guys have a 401k of some kind? You're always wondering if you have the right investments, if you're picking the right thing, and you're just not fully sure. Well, Bloom, with three O's, B-L-O-O-O-M, does free analysis of your current employee-sponsored retirement plan. You get to understand your investments at a glance and uncover unnecessary hidden fees. Then you put them to work. You put Bloom to work with your account for $10 a month, and they'll essentially fix your 401k by optimizing your fund choices and minimizing those hidden fees. And then at that point, you just sit back and let them do what they're going to do. Now, I found out about Bloom because of David Stein. I was listening to the podcast Money for the Rest of Us, and he mentioned Bloom. And I just wanted to check to see if I was picking the right investments. And I wasn't that far off. There was a few tweaks. But the concept itself of Bloom is amazing. Go in today's podcast notes and check it out for yourself. Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, for your 401k analysis. Let's get back to the show. I like your idea, and I believe you you said somewhere diversified, but maybe not too much. And I think when you say not too much, you kind of mean it by the standpoint of, just like you're saying right here, don't back yourself into a corner where you can't get out of, essentially. Whereas if we're faced with another recession, all your stuff is tied up in a home or bitcoins and and other things. You still have emergency funds and, and other things. You don't get so excited about FOMO, the fear of missing out, whether it's housing or, you know, Forex, whatever it may be. I don't know. I, I think that people like people are afraid to hold cash. And I the smartest investor I know is a man named Seth Klarman. He runs the Balpost Group. In fact, he wrote a book that's out of print called Margin of Safety that sells for about twenty five hundred bucks on Amazon. Wow. And he will frequently have forty percent of his hedge fund in cash because he does there he doesn't have enough ideas. Cash isn't basically it's an you have optionality with cash because you have ultimate flexibility to go, you know, if things fall apart, to be in a position to take advantage of that. But if if you're locked away in, in something illiquid like a house that's heavily leveraged, I you know, one of my friends during that 2006 period, smart guy, a builder, but ended up too much leveraged. They were as our next door neighbor. And he was in the position was they put everything up for sale and whatever sold first, they would have to move into the other house. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, the, the house that sold first was the one he was living in next, next door. So then they weren't our next door neighbors anymore. Right. But he was in a bind and he was sweating out and he, he learned big time the danger of leverage and he, he invests very differently now. So not to make you put your advisor hat back on, but, but please allow me this this minute here, if you don't mind, if someone who's listening, they has they have five thousand dollars, maybe two to five thousand dollars. What would be a better investment for them to start with? So I know that's very practical. It's a very loaded question, but you know that's all. That's all they have is two to five thousand. That, that's all they have. They don't have a four one k. They don't have 
um, any other investments anywhere. That's all they have liquid and they want to get started somewhere doing something to start this this process of collecting assets and begin their journey here. Maybe they're a young 30-year-old of some sort, but that's all they have. Right. Well, in that case, you you get an account at, at Vanguard or or Fidelity or or Schwab, you know, some some brokerage that offers commission-free exchange traded funds. So you're not paying commissions. And in fact, my kids, right? My kids have a couple hundred bucks in their IRA. Mm-hmm. And we bought, you know, Schwab offers some commission-free ETFs. So we were buying one share of an ETF. And so we're looking for what ETF sells for less than 40 bucks. So we can diversify and buy two ETFs. And so that that's the discipline. Just open an account. Yep. And, and you know, it, you know, Vanguard Fidelity, Schwab, you know, some of these big brokerages that have been around for a long time, the fees are low. You buy an index fund or exchange traded fund and you get started that way. And then go focus on trying to increase your income. Because you know, as a 30-year-old, five thousand dollars you're you're not you're not gonna be able to retire <laughs> you got you have to get to the point where you're generating enough income that you can save the twenty percent and then because you've already started investing, you spend time you know instead of spending time learning how to trade forex or commodities, spend time learning about asset classes. Why is it do stocks go up over time or other you know what learn about bonds? Or learn about real estate investment trusts. Focus on learn about the options in your 401k plan and and focus on just broad asset classes as opposed to digging in the weeds trying to figure out what Warren Buffett is buying and why should I why should I hold Apple or not? I don't spend time investing in individual stocks because I spent too much time re- researching investment managers who did that and I saw one how smart they were <laughs> and, and the lack of smarts I had in trying to identify mispriced companies, because that's what it is. If you buy an individual stock, Mm -hmm. your assumption is the market's wrong. Otherwise, it's going to match the return of the market or do worse. If it's going to do better than the market, then it has to be mispriced. And so you have to decide. It's not enough to say Apple's a great company, because it is, and it's growing really fast, because it is, that when you buy an individual stock like Apple, you're saying it's going to grow faster than what everyone else already assumes. And then you have to ask yourself, why do I know that? Mm-hmm. And it can't be a gut feeling. <laughs> it's got to be some type of informational edge. And that's how you outperform the stock market. If you don't know that, then you buy index funds. What about the person who is 20 years older? What are tools that you use to kind of track how much closer we may be getting to a recession? As investors, we don't have to spend time figuring out who's going who's gonna to win the trade war. A, a better approach is, is that you can track... As investors, you can track economic trends. And and the measure that I use is something called purchasing manager indices, so PMI. And there's a a group called Market, M-A-R-K-I-T. Every third week of the month and at the beginning of the month, they they do business surveys around the world. They ask businesses, how's business? What's your outlook for employment? What about your orders? And the way that these surveys are set up, they're, they're standardized, so 50 is typically it's somewhere between 40 and 60 is what these numbers come in. Mm-hmm. And 50 is usually the dividing line between expansion and, and contraction. And, and right now, and there's a global measure that's called the JP, JP Morgan Global PMI. And there's, there's manufacturing and there's non-manufacturing. And you can Google it and you can see what it is. So right now, the global PMI, so it basically aggregates all the countries around the world, it's around 53 and it's been dropping 
It was higher, but it's been dropping. The long-term average is around 51.5. Now, again, at 53, it's above 50. If we're in a contraction, the global PMI is, is closer to 48 mm-hmm. or 47 or even lower. So that that's a simple measure. I mean, something I track, I track and I do it on my on my site where, okay, each month, once a month, that's when they come out, we look at, all right, you know, what percent of countries around the world are, are still in expansion? And what's the overall global PMI? And, and that's the best measure I use to say, all right, once we get you know down to 50 or 49 and you're starting to see maybe other leading economic indicators, that's a time to start right. that's reducing what, risk. That was my next question that I was leading to. As you're older, you start reducing risk. How do you respond to that when you start seeing that? I respond by, I cut, if I had 60% of my portfolio in stocks, I reduce my stock exposure. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just how, now some people don't want to do that. They We prefer to ride the market up and down like a roller coaster. I the stock market on average falls 40 to 50% during economic recessions. I <laughs> don't want to, to go through that. And now the key is you have to do, you can't, you have to be able to be willing to increase risk when the opportunities are there. So in 2009, when PMI was suddenly improving again, <laughs> right. a lot of people just, they didn't make any change. And I'm not saying get, you get completely out, but you reduce risk in terms of maybe less stock exposure. You you don't have investments in high yield bond ETFs, which a lot of people are still in. So you reduce credit risk, you re- reduce equity risk, maybe you have more cash and then you wait and then be willing to invest when don't wait. Some people never got back into the market after 2008, right? You can't do that either. Right. But these are in, you know, some will say, well, that's market timing. You shouldn't be doing market timing. That's called being a portfolio manager. That's what we do. We allocate assets to the best opportunity and avoid the worst. And if we're entering into a recession or the indicators are there, it's prudent to, to lighten up on stocks a little bit and be willing to hold cash. Because when we get to the recession, and we're in an environment right now where, thankfully, we can earn 2.5% on cash-like investments, finally. Right. Instead mm-hmm. of earning 0.06% or something, you know, basically nothing. Mm-hmm. So you're actually getting paid to hold cash right now, where we weren't three or four years ago. And the Federal Reserve's still raising its policy rate. And so it looks like, you know, we're gonna get paid even more to hold cash. Right. And so that that's what you do. There, there's some simple measures. So look at market M-A-R-K-I-T dot com and you can do a press release. It's all free. You can see what's going on with, with PMI, and then you just sort of make adjustments. Not sudden ones, but incremental ones. Bring us down to earth a little bit in terms of the market as it stands today. How, you know, with the news reports coming out, the president will come out and say we have 4% unemployment rate, but everything is good about the market. It's it's beautiful. I mean, the average person, if you just walk past the television and hear the news reports, we are in the best place ever. Practically speaking, from you know, in your opinion, Financially, how do you think we look? How, uh, what kind of shape are we in? Well, first off, there's not just one unemployment measure. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I did an episode recently because Peter Schiff was on Joe Rogan's podcast and, and said the same thing. So the unemployment number is not right. It's, it's too low. There's people out there that are discouraged, that are working for part-time. Well, there's like seven different unemployment numbers. So I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they measure how many people are discouraged or are working part-time and would like to work Mm full-time. And the reality is unemployment is extremely low. Now, people aren't necessarily in the jobs that they would like to be in, 
But generally speaking, the economy in the current environment, it's not growing as fast as we would like, mm-hmm. but it has grown consistently in the low single digits since 2009. Now, that will eventually end. That doesn't end because the, the recovery's old. It ends because at some point, people become more risk averse. Yes. And they, they stop buying and businesses start cutting back. And oftentimes it's because it finally gets to the point where rates are too high, people are unwilling to borrow, and and that that's just what economic cycles are. We don't necessarily, or maybe it's a terrorist attack and people freak. Which out. we all have seen in two thousand and eight because of the housing market that people right. were afraid to borrow, and this whole this whole systematic process played out. Just well, yeah, like you're it, saying, it did. And you know we're in the late stages of the expansion because people are getting well. How many house flippers are there, right? I mean, you're seeing a level of excess. Now, the stock market globally is, it's fairly valued. It's at its 20-year average. The U.S. stock market is well above average in terms of, it's expensive, no doubt. So, but it it's still, it, we're not to the point like we were, for example, in 2007 or 2000. You don't have that absolute mania going on. You still have people that, that housing are, market was unlike anything else. Is that fair? I mean, that was well, it was, and the internet market for internet stocks was was the same way. We're not there in terms of the absolute mania. We have an ex- expensive market, but you know, I rate investment conditions neutral right now. I you know my on my website we we look we look at different indicators. It's neutral, which means as an investor you should be in line with your long term. Allocation. So I've pared back risk a little bit and and things like non-investment grade bonds where the incremental yield you're getting is is well below average. So you're not getting paid for the risk of investing in junk bonds. So I don't I don't own that. But that doesn't mean I'm sitting here holding a bunch of cash. I don't have much cash. I probably have less than five percent cash in my portfolio. And I'm in all different types of things, a lot of them income oriented strategies, but it we're in a good we're good in a good position, but that doesn't mean it's there's not problems. There's all kinds of problems. But if we focus all our time on problems, we'll never get anything done. Right. David, this was this was really good. I mean, you know, the 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 information shared here and and, and like I said, the reason why I like your approach, you take, you know, finances for a lot of people, even down to the ticker tape, right? People get very they grow some kind of phobia from it and they just, they get paralysis of analysis. They just decide, you know what, I'm not going to get involved in any of it, including not talk to a financial advisor, et cetera. But having a podcast and a podcast like yours, Money for the Rest of Us, really takes some complex ideas and breaks it down for people that makes it digestible. And I really um, highly, highly suggest everyone listening to this podcast to go check it out go to moneyfortherestofus.com. And, and David, how can they, you know, connect with you, whether it's for the membership site, if they want to follow you, you know, on your, on your social channels, how can they do that? Well, the first place, yeah, moneyfortherestofus.com, that's where you can uh, get more information. The podcast, you just search anywhere for Money for the Rest of Us. You can listen to the podcast for free. It comes out every Wednesday. And, and I'm on Twitter at JD Stein. So I'm around. He's around. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm around. So, but I agree. I, to your point, we can all learn to invest. This is not, we don't have to be experts. We just have to be effective in terms of our approach. So we focus on diversification. We can focus on the building blocks. We can keep our eyes open and everyone, we don't have to be experts. 
you know, you're not expert on everything, but we need to know enough so that we don't get blindsided like many people did in 2007, where they were over leveraged and they thought houses would never fall in price and they can. Yeah, I literally started off reading uh, Black Enterprise, started reading Wall Street Journal, and then you get you start to understand, okay, 52 week high and low. That's not it's not what I thought it was. I don't have to do a whole lot of algebraic formulas around that. It's pretty much right in front of my face, the answer is, and it becomes less intimidating. And I think once people really give themselves an opportunity to understand finances a little bit and then test it out many, many years back, I would do drip accounts with companies like Home Depot, which is direct reinvestment accounts for those. And you know, to your point with your kids, I would just literally, stocks at Home Depot would be $50 a share, for example, and I would put $25 so I wouldn't have a full stock until I put the remaining $25. So that's slow. It literally Mm -hmm. was a drip, but you have to start somewhere and you have to start where you're at. And um, if you never get started, 10 years, you look back, you'll be that guy or that gal that says, oh man, I had the opportunity to get an Apple, which you hear everybody say at some degree. And um, you got to get started somewhere, wherever you're at, you know, there's so many, so much good information out there. Now, there's so much, it's scary sometimes, I would say. Focus on asset class. So focus, you know, get the account of Vanguard. And, you know, maybe if you want to like get a, get the Robinhood app and buy a share of stock, it's helpful yes. just to see yes. how volatile they are and, and, and sort of try it out. But then go back to the, the core should be, that, that's funny money. The core should be broad diversification and focus on savings. And it's, it's important, like I agree with you, to start. Start where you are, start buying ETFs and a commission-free basis and just start that investing. And then so you can get comfortable with investing. I mean, that's part of it. It's just that comfort level. Because you have to get comfortable with small balances because, you know, when you get the large balances, mm. Maybe you get a payout or something, a bonus, then you got to acclimate yourself to that. Mm. But you got to be able to do it with small amounts and get the understanding. So when your account's bigger, you're not freaked out. Yeah. Good stuff. David, I really appreciate you taking the time out. I mean, this this meant a lot for me. I'm sure it means a lot for the listeners. So I thank you so much for taking the time. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. I want to thank today's guest, David, for being on the show. He had such amazing, insightful information. And, you know, just as I mentioned in the opening, taking information and breaking it down so that the rest of us can understand it. I've been an investor for several years, 20 years almost, and I've tried drip accounts. I've been involved in cryptocurrency, a lot of podcast episodes that you've heard me talk in. I've, you know, played in it in one form or another, but sometimes the excitement of getting in something still reveals the fact that you're ignorant in it. So it's always good to have resources like David's podcast, his membership site to kind of delve into to help expand your knowledge in those areas. So you guys keep a lookout for next Sunday's podcast episode should be a really good one. Until then, talk to you soon. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. And I'm just ferocious.